You're listening to the All You Can Eat Shrimp Podcast, and I'm joined today by Ben Jenham. As you may remember, Ben Jenham is a public school teacher who started working at the beginning of the 2020 lockdowns. And he's come back with many observations for not only how education has changed in the long term now that COVID has finally ended, but how education has impacted his life and some major plans he has for the future. You're listening to the All You Can Eat Shrimp podcast. I'm your host, Tim Shrimp. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Thanks for coming on to the show, Ben. Pleasure to be here, Tim. As someone who's uh, been working at the beginning of the pandemic, as well as through it, and now that the pandemic is over, like what major what major changes have you noticed? Well, aside from everything, <laughs> um, well, in terms of education, uh, I would say it definitely. I, I noticed this more last year when students say they had the option to wear masks. I definitely noticed a lot of students who would choose to um, simply mm-hmm. because I think they got so used to it. Um, yeah. Other than that, uh, I've really noticed just a lot of how how behind the kids are, which is deeply unfortunate. We still have a lot of interventionists in the school that are trying to get the kids caught up and they're doing a great job. Uh, like, what do you mean by caught up exactly? Well, a lot of the kids who are fourth, fifth graders right now, um, were, I don't know, first, second graders when the, the worst yeah. of this really hit. And that's a crucial age for learning to read, learning basic math skills. Um, so they're really behind a lot of them. Um, not the entire grade level per se, but uh, a, a significant portion of them are behind grade level for as for what they should be when it comes to meeting fourth and fifth grade standards. Oh yeah. Like the CDC actually just revised a lot of the developmental standards for a lot of children on where they should be and a lot of behavioral milestones. And I feel like the pandemic has had a great impact on that. Like speech specifically has been highly impacted by this. So like, very young kids are learning words, words and speaking at a older rate than previous generations were. Like, to clarify, I mean, children are learning to speak a lot slower than they were before the pandemic. That's what I mean. Yes, that's true. Um, I guess the biggest impact that I've noticed in terms of speech um, is for children who have speech needs. Um, it was really difficult with a mask on. Because children often rely on reading lips when they are learning to speak. And you can't really do that with a mask on, which has made um, a speech language pathologist in a school's job really, really difficult. So, um, yeah, they are learning to speak a lot slower, though. That's another area that I think a lot of them have to get caught up on is, um, is speech. And fortunately, we have a very good speech-language pathologist in our district who is doing a really great job. Yeah, and, like, uh, what exactly is the purpose of a speech pathologist? Is that the term you used? Speech-language pathologist, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's for children who have communication needs, say they can't pronounce their R's, say they have a lisp, um, say they substitute the W for the L. So, for example... Look over there is whoop over there, um, you know, things like that, where they just substitute one letter for another, where they can't form certain sounds with their mouth and their teeth and their tongue. Um, the speech language pathologist works really hard in doing that and showing them how to form those sounds correctly. Yeah, and speech is a very important thing. Without the ability to speak, you wouldn't have podcasts like this one. That's correct. Absolutely. Speaking is a very important part of life. Yeah. And just learning to speak, that's a a big thing that helps you develop your behavioral milestones as well when you're very young. And 
that's another thing I heard early on as lockdowns are being getting to loosen and kids were going back into school that uh, that teachers reporting that children weren't emotionally and behaviorally developing the same way they should be in the past. Uh, would you like to elaborate on what your personal experience is that? Where they're not developing social emotionally? Um, I guess you can say, yeah, I've noticed that a little bit. Um, to some extent, yes. I have noticed an increased reliance on technology um, where the kids love to be plugged into their Chromebooks. Um, <laughs> I only have 10 students this year that I'm working with, and I'll tell you a little bit more about the job that I do later. Um, but last year, I had like 400. So I noticed a lot throughout my 400 students last year that when I would search for their interests or I would ask them for things that they want to do or to write about, talk about, all they would mention are things related to technology in some way, uh, with yeah. a few exceptions, which I think is really, really crazy because they need that social emotional connections that don't involve a screen in front of them. So, Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Like I got a VR headset and, uh, like anyone who complained about children on Xbox live way back in 2008, hey, would be begging for those days with, uh, just how insane some of these kids are in VR. Like, they're constantly screaming. Like, my favorite sound to play in a VR game right now is silence in my own home. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's a great point. But, um, yeah. So, kids have a lot of social emotional learning to do. And I actually am working on that a little bit in my classroom role this year, um, where I teach like a social skills class, which I think is a really important class to teach, but it's also a really difficult one because you have to role play, you have to do scenarios and not every kid knows what to do and say in those scenarios. And you have to explicitly teach them things that a lot of people just usually don't even think about or take for granted. Oh yeah. Like, uh, would you like to elaborate a bit more on what your role is in right now as, as a teacher? Sure. Yeah. So I've actually done something different every single year that I've been a teacher so far. This is my fourth year in education. My first year I taught fourth grade, and that was the year the pandemic began. Um, then after that, I landed, or well, I didn't land a job at all. I was a substitute teacher where I taught everything, and I just sort of bounced around between two different districts that I really enjoyed. So, and then my third year um, that I just was talking about, I taught art to fourth and fifth graders. And now this year, I am a special ed teacher. So the role that I have this year um, involves students. I, okay, I'm what's called a DCD teacher. And the D DCD stands for Developmental Cognitive Disabilities. So students that um, are on my caseload have a diagnosed cognitive disability, either that or they're physically impaired. Um, so a simpler way of explaining that is if they have a cognitive disability, chances are they're very academically low um, and below grade level, not meeting their grade level standards. Um, and they oftentimes struggle with social issues as well. So I do have a few students on my caseload who have an autism diagnosis. I have a few students who have um, a cerebral palsy diagnosis um, and other such things. I have a few students who are just, they have tough home lives and they don't have, I would say, great support at home, um, which I think is sad. Um, but it's my job to meet the needs of all of those students. Each of them has their own um, goals outlined in their individual education program, otherwise known as an IEP. And it's my job to come up with um, assignments, projects, and activities every day that help them meet their academic and social goals. That's very awesome. And uh, like, I'm on teacher TikTok a lot because of reasons, I guess. So I hear a lot about the teacher shortage and as well as someone who studies the news very eagerly, I notice uh, that's kind of a big thing all across the country at the moment, just schools struggling to bring teachers on board. Like what has your personal experience been with the shortage and just that and just getting teachers to work post pandemic now? Sure. Yeah. It's, um, 
you do have a point. It's very true. I guess I struggled to get a job my, thir- my well, would have been my second year teaching because everybody's budget was thrown into a tailspin due to the pandemic. Um, nobody knew if we were going to be coming back. Um, teachers that were on the fence about retiring eventually just decided to say to hell with it and retire anyway. That led to a mass exodus. Um, teachers yeah. had to scramble to fill um, positions for the immunocompromised. And I guess for me, I am very, I was very selective about where I decided to get a job. So I more, I, I kind of had a hard time landing a position in a district and a position that I was comfortable in, but um, I've, I've been very fortunate so far, but as far as on a wide scale filling vacancies, um, you're right. We do have a massive shortage. Um, and it also depends on what your comfort level is. Um, so I don't really think, for example, that there's a mass shortage of, like, for example, phi ed teachers. Um, What's a phi ed? Uh, physical education, so gym class. Oh, so phys ed. Okay. Yep, phys ed. Yeah. Um, simply because the activities involved there, um, I guess you could say, don't involve as heavy of planning as a classroom teacher or a special ed teacher. Now, that's not to demean what phi ed teachers do at all. They obviously play a very important role as well. Um, but there's a very different, a very big difference between that and filling a position, for example, like in an EBD classroom. EBD is emotional behavioral disorders. Um, that kind of position for the pay that it receives and for the job that it involves are very, very difficult to fill. And I've been pleased mm-hmm. to see that my district under our new superintendent, who's been doing an excellent job, and I can only say great things about him, um, is, is taking steps to fix. So they're adding kind of an incentive pay for what they call, quote unquote, difficult to fill positions. Um, and now what that means is they'll offer a certain amount of extra money for teachers who apply for a job that is, um, again, difficult to fill. Now there's massive um, criteria for what that means um, but there, it, it involves things like, uh, what's expected of you on the job and how long the position stays vacant before anybody applies for it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I've been pleased to see that my superintendent has been taking steps to work with the school board to increase the amount of teachers that want to apply within our district. Yeah. And just kind of ride on to one of your earlier points that you said, uh, planning like again uh as an outsider to what it means to be a teacher to have this as a career path one thing i see teachers on tiktok talk about a lot is the fact that so much time is dedicated to planning but not really knowing how to really take that plan into that teaching plan into actuality to meet criteria so you want to walk through our audience on how a teacher would generally plan out a lesson plan for, let's say, a day? Well, it depends on what kind of teacher you are. So I'll just use my own personal experience. My lesson plans this year compared to last year are very, 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 very different. And they're both very, very different from, say, my first year as a classroom teacher. Now, I have a lot of experience in a lot of different areas of education. Like I said, I've been an elementary school teacher. I've been an art teacher. I've been a special ed teacher. Now, planning for art last year, I would actually argue, was somewhat easier than planning for special ed. Now, the only reason it was because, and the reason that is, is because I could plan one project for all 400 of my students And I would just need to repeat it 16 times over the course of two days. So at the beginning, it was kind of bumpy as I was trying to explain a new project. But by the 16th class, I was I was a master at explaining it. So it involved a lot of heavy manual work, like preparing all of those projects for the kids. But the planning itself was really quite simple. And the explanations, I would argue, were quite simple. 
This year, I would argue my planning is harder with 10 kids because each of those 10 kids are in a very, very different spot academically, and they have very, very different goals. So for example, I have a group of four students. My, my biggest group is four kids that comes in for an hour, half hour of reading, half hour of math. That is the hardest hour of my day, simply because I have one of those students who is reading nearly at grade level, and another two of those students who can barely string sounds together to read at all. And another, my last one in that group is kind of in between. So, and I don't have a para in there during that time. So it's on me to come up with a way to reach every single one of these kids' goals and objectives during class without a para. Now, could that change? I hope it does at some point, but it's really, really challenging to help kids who are already reading really quite well and some and the other kids who are not reading well at all at the exact same time. Yeah, so you basically need to be more flexible within the class period rather than the art class where you can be a bit more broad and the kids can do a bit more trial and error. Would that be a fair assessment? Yes, definitely. Because um, hands-on art projects, I would say, are very, very different than paper, pencil, academic skills. Um, they go hand in hand in some areas, but um, building a clay pot, for example, is very different than reading a book and telling me what the book was about. Oh yeah, like that's why I really like uh, Bob Ross and his Joy of Painting series. Like, like you ever watch that? I've heard of Bob Ross, but I, regrettably, I have not watched him paint. You haven't watched Bob Ross, man. Then you ain't living. All right. I'll keep that in mind. I'm, you're yeah, kind of like, putting me to shame as a former art teacher here. <laughs> well, don't worry. As any good teacher would tell you, the best teachers learn from each other. Like, and I feel like Bob Ross is a great example of why art education is important. Like... Basically, his whole stick for the people who haven't seen Bob Ross is that he'll walk you through the process of painting a landscape portrait, and it's super relaxing for one hand, and on the other, it's just uh, him guiding you through the individual techniques. So, like, even if you don't get uh, the painting exactly like he does, that that's all right, because the whole point is to learn skill sets that can eventually evolve into other forms of art and who knows maybe even different forms of the same hobby in the same vein yeah absolutely well you've now put it on my agenda to watch bob ross oh yeah like all of his videos are available on youtube completely free and just sit back relax super enjoyable good to know but but you gotta watch bob ross after you listen to this podcast, that's the one rule. Good plan. All you eat, all you can eat shrimp podcasts and the joys of painting go together hand in hand. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And just come back to the subject. Uh, yeah, so there's been a lot of talk about Florida's Parental Rights and Education Act, also known as the Don't Say Gay Bill, and just indoctrination indoctrination in general so what's your take on someone working within the education field with a conservative and religious perspective background so what's your take on this whole culture war phenomenon going on right now i think it's a lot of a lot of bull honestly it's to call it a don't say gay bill is just absolutely asinine because it doesn't tell you that you can't say gay. That would be restricting right. free speech. And that's not at all what's happening down there. You can yeah, say yeah. that as much as you want. What it does restrict is what type of content you're allowed to teach in literally, I, I, I believe it is grades K through three. Correct. I think, if I'm not mistaken. Now, mm -hmm. if you're, in, uh, in my opinion, no... Nobody under the age of 12 or 13 
needs to hear the word gay repeated regularly. Okay. That's not to say that people can't say it, but, and, or they can't know what it means, but I don't think it should be made a part, a big part of classroom discussions at all. But this bill doesn't even do that. It just says you can't actively discuss or promote or discourage, I guess you could say, LGBT topics for nine-year-olds and younger, which I think is just, it's a good start, but it needs to go further. Yeah, and like, yeah, and to be fair, it does open some questions on how far you think we should be able to go with uh, just discussing serious topics to kids because you got i'm not talking like the birds and the bees like i'm talking about things like where babies come from and how difficult pregnancy can be sometimes like uh there's this really popular cartoon disney put out how recently called bluey and it is adorable and they just did a pretty recent episode where they kind of address where they straight up address the issues of uh being infertile and not being able to get pregnant and have kids mm-hmm. yeah and obviously they don't go into the details of sex and pregnancy at least not directly but they do kind of discuss it in the same way that pixar's up discussed uh infertility in the first 10 minutes so i guess it's a little question of how far can we take these discussions from people that aren't a child's primary caregiver? Like, what roles do you feel like, as a teacher, you should play in teaching kids about harder truths like that? Sure. Well, I just wonder, honestly, whatever happened to answering a question like that with that's not a question that I can answer for you. You need to ask your parents. Um, I think honestly, how far we should go is not mention anything that's not outlined in the standards. So for example, fourth and fifth graders go through what's called growth and development. That's, that's a standard. Now parents can choose and at least in our district to have their kids opt out of growth and development. And that's where they learn about, for example, sexual reproduction, the boy parts, the girl parts. Girls are kept in one room, taught by a woman. Boys are kept in another, taught by a male. Okay. I think that's fine. I think, you know, that's a very good thing for for kids to learn about, provided they're mature enough to handle it. But even that, K through 3 are not going through those bodily changes so they don't need to learn about growth and development yet. So I'm just thinking if kids don't need to learn about growth and development, why would they need to learn about um, sexualization in class? Now that, that begs the question, I guess, like what if a kindergarten teacher is gay, for example, and if the kids are confused about why does this person have, two moms or two dads like why does my classmates classmate have two moms or why does my teacher have a woman in her picture instead of a man now that is all well and good to a certain libertarian perspective if you want to be a teacher and have a gay partner like from a libertarian perspective that's fine um but i also believe that it's if the, if a student asks about that, then they should say to the student, um, that's not something that I feel I can discuss with you. Again, talk to your parents. So I know we wanted to talk a little bit about if indoctrination has happened. Um, it has happened, I believe, on somewhat of a wide scale. And up until last year, I would say it would, I don't, think I would have said that I've seen it in my district, but I have seen little bits and pieces where, um, for example, these fifth graders that I had last year as fourth graders have been changing their names and they have been using terminology such as dead naming 
I've heard mention of pronouns. Um, I don't believe that they're learning it from our district, so to speak, but they are learning it from environments such as I believe like TikTok and YouTube where, um, which I believe is just as much of a problem as indoctrination in, in, in school. So if it's not school, they can get it from online, which I believe is another place we need to have guardrails up. Yeah. Like basically I think, uh, it all comes down to just parents being involved in what media the kids are consuming to a certain degree, like being involved parents and just realizing that yes, as a teacher, you do get a certain degree of trust with those kids, but all at the same time, there needs to be some appropriate boundaries and kids don't really understand that. And adults sometimes don't realize that they need to be the mediator for addressing the fact that boundaries and understanding that some people might not have the best interest in their hearts for them is something that parents need to start addressing again with their kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say the most prominent examples I've seen of this are things that pages like libs of tiktok pull up now i'm not a tiktok user okay i don't and i never will um just my perspective i i have enough social media as it is um my students ask me all the time if i get will get one and i always tell them no i don't need another app to waste my time but i have seen things posted by people i respect like ben shapiro who watch things that libs of tiktok post where these people who are in classrooms working with children, sometimes as young as preschool, are talking about them with things like pronouns and um, yeah. things like consent. Like they're they're figuring out what non-binary means. Now, for the record, I didn't. I still really don't have a true definition of what the word non-binary means, and I didn't. I hadn't even heard the term till college. There is no reason that a preschooler should be knowing what that means. So I wholeheartedly say, take your kids away from those people. They should not be teaching your kids. Yeah, and then you get a lot of people who, like, personally, I feel like a big reason why education is getting accused of so much indoctrination lately is because I feel like a lot of people go into the education program when they get into college because Mm -hmm. they're one, they're scared about what the future holds. Like for the last 16 years of their lives, they've kind of gone this groove set by how they should live their lives based on uh, a high school schedule. Like once you go into the real world, you're kind of on your own end. You need to figure out how do I live my life? So I feel like a certain percentage of people do go into teaching because they want to recapture that feeling of security. I know that's kind of a big reason why I kind of leaned into teaching in college at, at first. So what's your perspective on that theory? As for why I went into teaching? Uh, no, I mean, why so many people go into teaching with, even with knowing the big turnout rate of teaching, like, like, there's a lot of issues of teaching, yet so many people go into the education program anyway still. so Well, that's true. I The way I see it, and I think a lot of people see it, is you don't teach for the income, you teach for the outcome. Now, yeah. I'm not in it to push my perspective on kids. I don't tell kids where I stand on anything, especially this year, because that's the last thing on my kids' mind, is my political perspectives. Um they're there to learn and they know that and I'm there to teach them and I know that. Um, so I am there though to try to not only teach them what they need to know, but to make a positive impact in their life. But that's not to say that I don't recognize my guardrails because I do. I'm not their parent. I don't want to be their parent. They have parents. Now, are some of their parents like the students I've had in the past or some of their parents, what you could call maybe incompetent or inconsistent, I would say sure. Um, But that's not to say that I 
have any right to usurp their job. I can set a good example. I can tell them what I think they need to hear. I can hold them accountable. Um, and maybe 15 years later, they'll look back at me and say, you know what? I'm glad he said that. I'm glad he did that. Because if he hadn't, I never would have learned this lesson. So that's my hope and my goal during teaching is to make a positive difference um, in the students that, I, that I'm with, both academically and socially, and have a little fun in the meantime. Yeah, I feel like those are some very great goals. And uh, that's a big reason why you've got, like, since you were last here on the show, you were in uh, the grad school program, correct? That is correct. It's still still true. I actually have an assignment due at midnight. <laughs> well, we won't uh, keep you for much longer than we want you here. So, no, that's okay. Still have plenty of time. <laughs> so, good. why don't you tell us a little bit about what education at a master's level is like? Like, what does it teach you with a master's degree look like, just performance wise, and what you can do with that? Yeah. Um, well, this is the first time I've been in a program and I hope it's the last. Not that I don't feel like I'm learning anything because I obviously do. Um, however, the last thing I want to do after coming home working a full day is to go and be a student again and do homework. So I can't say that I love everything about it right now, but I do enjoy the content that I'm learning. Um, I do enjoy the tools that I'm getting in my toolbox, so to speak. Um, now, as far as like what I do with it, um, it allows me in a sense to quote unquote, climb the ladder at work in terms of pay, in terms of seniority, in terms of steps, lane changes, all these different educational buzzwords for, um, for, climbing in seniority and tenure and pay within the district. Um, so for example, if you have a master's degree plus a certain amount of credits and you're tenured within the district, that's very clear that the district values you and will want to keep you. But if you were like me three, four years ago, when I had a bachelor's degree, no master's degree, no tenure, and I was a brand new teacher, was my district happy to get me last minute? Absolutely. But at the same time, I was one of the first to go because of my little experience and no master's degree and no tenure. So I'm working at getting um, more tools in my toolbox. And that's why I'm taking classes in special ed. I want to learn how to help kids who have autism. I want to learn how to help kids who have behavior challenges. I want to help kids who are just a little bit academically low. I like all the tools in my toolbox that I can use to help them um, in an everyday setting, not just academically, but socially as well. Social emotional learning is important. I keep coming back to that because it's true. And I do feel like the master's degree program that I'm in is helping me get those tools in my toolbox. Um, it's obviously very different though, because I've never actually been to the campus or met any of my professors because my program is entirely online. So that's been a challenge, but it's also been somewhat convenient because I don't need to drive to North Dakota every week. <laughs> that's really good. Like as a sort of, as a lifelong South Dakota resident before Minnesota and Colorado, I can say no one wants to be in North Dakota. <laughs> Not, not a problem. Yeah. And uh, another big uh, event that you've had uh, happen to you recently was you published your first book, correct? I didn't publish it other than I, well, I guess oh, you okay. could say I self-published it. Um, Fair. There's a difference between that and, and actually publishing. Um, but I did get the, a lot of them printed on a, on a large scale. Yes, I do have copies of my book sitting in my house, which is not something I ever thought I would ever experience. Books that and, I wrote sitting in my house. <laughs> and how can people get one of these books out of your house? Well, um, I would like to have gone bigger and found an actual publisher, 
but since I've been in grad school right now, you can imagine that um, searching online and writing cover letters and getting my name out there has been very low on my priority list at the moment. But if anybody did want a copy of my book, all they'd have to do is reach out to me. I'm available on Facebook Messenger. Um, they can send me an email. Really, just about any method of communication is, is fine with me. I have lots of copies, and if I run out, I can order more. So and go through me. Yeah, and what's the name of your book? My name of the book, um, it contains a word that I guarantee not many people have heard before. It's called The Vagabond. Tell us a little bit about it. So a vagabond means a wanderer. It means a traveler. Somebody who just kind of bounces around from place to place. Now, it it has kind of a, a long storyline, but try to try to bear with me here. So it's a the story of a 16-year-old girl named Doris who has who's deaf in one ear due to a bout with the Spanish flu when she was seven. Now, this story takes place in 1928, um, and Doris is 16 years old. So she moves from a town in North Dakota to Minnesota, um, my dad's hometown specifically. And so she moves there, and she struggles to make friends. Um, she's always been known as the deaf girl, the poor girl, the new girl, and she wants to get establish herself. So she finally meets this one other boy who's very nice to her. And they, then he, in turn, introduces her to a set of twins that are his friends. Now, the twins are quite a bit younger than he is. Um, or, excuse me, than Doris is. Than, than both of them are. But they team up and they decide that they're going to build a clubhouse in Doris's backwoods. Um, so they do that. And when a snowstorm traps them late there one night, um, they are scared, not only because it's snowing and it's dark and it's cold, but the door opens and a mysterious man shows up. And this man um, is, they're concerned about it first, but they eventually, Doris eventually is roped into taking care of him. Her other friends are steered away from it. Um, they don't think it's a good idea. But she takes care of him. She takes takes him food, takes him water, keeps him entertained. And she learns that he's just a soldier falling on hard times trying to find his dad. Um, and that then leads to some conflicts with her friends who are not okay with her taking care of this man. And, and keep in mind, she's hiding this from her parents. And so... What ultimately ends up happening, without spoiling too much of it, is the tables end up turning, and her friends all of a sudden turn into the ones who want to take care of this man, and she doesn't think it's a great idea. Um, so they're roped into it. They have to find a way to get out of it, especially when it turns out that this vagabond this traveler this person who showed up there is not all that he claims to be so oh, really? and this is all while they're yes this is all while they're dealing with a school bully and a mysterious plot twist or a subplot i should say where doris has all of this stuff in her attic that she doesn't know where it came from and she tries to figure it out so somehow and you'll have to read it to find out how um, all of these things are connected. So I hope you'll give that a read. It's a, it's a twist. It's a mystery, um, a touch of love. It's intense. It's kind of a thriller. And, um, it has a very, very interesting ending. I'll just say that. Yes. And if you send me contact info on how it can be purchased, I'll put that in the show notes. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Find me on Facebook Messenger, Ben Jenham, um, or they can send me an email. It's just ben.jenham at gmail.com. Yes. And uh, what would you say were some of your inspirations for your novel? Well, that's a good one. I'd hope to come back to this, actually. So there's an interesting part of the book in that 
90% of the characters in my book were actually real people at one point really? in their life. I didn't make them up. Now, I twisted their last name, obviously. It's not the same last name that they had in real life. But um, during the pandemic, I had gone to various cemeteries around where my dad grew up um, because of, I was doing a family genealogy project at the time. And while I was there, I just couldn't help but notice the sad condition of some of these tombstones that looked like people had just been completely forgotten by the world. Um, so I took note of some of these names and I decided to make these the characters in my book. It's a way as if to say, you are not forgotten by the world. You are in a book. Now, it's not your real story. I don't know if you actually connected with any of these other people in your life. Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. I'll never know. But the point is, that really doesn't matter to me. I just wanted to write write with real people. Now, as far as the story itself goes, um, I don't know. I just came up with a bunch of plot ideas that I thought would be interesting. I listed them out in a journal and I decided, okay, how, how can I run with this? How can I take some of these elements and make them go together? So I took um, the mysterious element of stuff found in an attic, and I combined it with a traveler who was lost in the cold and used those characters, the real characters, as my people, and all of a sudden I had a story. Hmm. Sounds like some very good inspiration. And uh, I want to talk uh, specifically about the main character, Doris. Like, as you said, uh, she's deaf in one ear. Like... What inspired you to make your character physically disabled like that? You know, I wish I could tell you. I really don't have um, much of an answer for that other than that's just the way I wrote the character, I guess. Um, it certainly came in handy at certain times, like when she needed her... Well, at the time, there were no hearing aids. So when they people used um, what they call ear horns. Like where you hold something up to your ear so that people can talk into it and they they can hear the person can hear you better. It certainly came in handy, for example, when I needed Doris to have a weapon and she used her ear horn as a weapon. Um, now, but as far as inspiration for making the character disabled like that, I don't know. I just thought adding a twist like that would um, would give me some more running room for creating the character. Um, and That's gave like, her something unique, something unique about her. Yeah, I just didn't know if uh, working with disabled children or a master's program evolved around neurodivergent children was kind of a part of your thought process of having a child with uh, a handicap like that being the main character and the main focus. Actually, no, I finished this book before I got the special ed job. But I did work with oh. children um, with disabilities on somewhat of a scale before I wrote this book. Um, but I, I, as far as I know, I don't recall any of them having um, a hearing condition. So I don't know where that came from. It just kind of showed up, and I went with it. So. so what would you say to, like, what advice would you give to someone getting into writing right now? Getting into writing? Um, yes. Don't expect it to happen overnight. And don't expect it to be a career changer. Um, it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of time. There's going to be time when you don't want to do it. And there's going to be times when you're gonna. it's all you're going to want to do. Um, it depends also on what you want to write. Um, I have, I bet, multiple different writing projects in my queue right now. I'm writing a memoir. I'm writing a children's book. I'm writing a different um, mystery novel. Um, and I'm still trying to write my family genealogy, all while trying to create a, um, a 
what you call a memory book for my high school classmates. That hasn't been worked on in a while. Um, But I have many different writing projects. And what I've learned most is patience. Um, And do a lot of research too. Like I had to do a lot of research and do a lot of cutting, in fact, to my novel because I was finding things weren't historically consistent. You have to be historically consistent, especially if you're writing, um, well, especially nonfiction, but even something like historical fiction, you just because it didn't happen in real life doesn't mean that it should be historically inconsistent. So I had to do a lot of research on things like that. Um, And I just keep coming back to patience because it's true. Don't expect to write your first book overnight or even in a few weeks or months. It takes lots of preparation. Um, And in a lot of cases, it's worth it. You could become a Nicholas Sparks and hit hit a good publisher out of a slush pile just completely by chance. Um, Or you could spend lots of your life writing excellent books yet still not be picked up by a publisher. So just patience um and don't expect a career change out of it because it's the equivalent of trying to get onto broadway or into the nfl or in my case uh trying to get a super successful podcast out there i'm getting there and uh anything else uh major note you like to put out about writing that a lot of people don't realize? Um, and we're cut, you were cutting in and out here. So I hope I didn't miss too much, but it's okay. I heard, I think I heard the last part. Um, write what makes you happy, you know, do something that you are going to love writing about. I I, like when I always tell my students, if you're going to come up with something to write about, Make sure it's something that you're passionate about. It's something that you enjoy doing. So I have a student right now who struggles to write. He loves superheroes. So I say, all right, let's write about superheroes. Let's write everything we can about superheroes. Um, And he's gotten actually pretty good at writing um, from just writing about superheroes. So um, from an author's perspective, I would say write what makes you happy. Um, and if that's a children's book, great. If that's a um, science textbook for a college course, great. If that's something completely different, like a magazine, go for it. But we need writers in the world, um, good writers um, who write books, actual books, because we need to give our kids and our youth and our teens options to choose from when it comes to reading. Reading is important. Um, and I'm I'm always amazed at how I hear a lot less kids interested in reading because why would they read when they have their games or their technology? Um, I want kids to be thinking books are like TV in your head. So, yeah. And just to kind of piggyback off of that, like I really think it's important for conservatives like us to be able to produce this kind of media because Like, when you really look at the landscape of uh, media, people like us that hold a lot of conservative values have been kind of uh, pushed away. And a big reason for that is that we've uh, neglected the importance of creating art from a conservative perspective that shows our values and humanizes us. Because Ben Shapiro and Andrew Breibart said best, uh, politics... Culture is upstream from politics, so we need to get back in the culture wars. I very much agree, yes. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say that people like us have to write anything explicitly conservative or political. You know, I if I'm going to write a book, I may even include things in my book that are of a different perspective or political persuasion from my own. You know, that's not to say necessarily that I'm going to write explicitly demeaning things, but on the same token, I think it's important to include different perspectives in our stories um, 
same as you, I'm sure, would be willing to have somebody on air who is not of the right. You know, having a discussion, I think, is important, just as I think including all perspectives, conservative and progressive alike, in media, in culture, in entertainment are important, and that nobody should be cast out for what they believe. Yeah, so I definitely do think we should be doing that. Like, do you see yourself uh, producing any, like, it doesn't have to be a a children's book with a very clear conservative meaning, but it could be something that shows a lot of your values, which are influenced by your beliefs and conservative values. So, like, do you ever see yourself maybe making something similar to Veggie Tales, for an example, like something like that? Can you repeat that question you cut out? Okay, like, do you see yourself ever making, at least trying to produce some content where the conservative meaning is very subtle or or like something similar to Veggie Tales, where it shows a religious perspective with values that you strongly agree with? Sure. So... I'm almost certain that the children's book you have in mind talking about this is Johnny the Walrus by Matt Walsh, right? <laughs> I, I didn't say that specifically, um, but yeah, well, let's go with that. <laughs> sure. Um, I haven't written any children's book that have a very clear political message, no. The children's book that I'm writing right now is not actually a standalone book. It's part of a series, similar to The Magic Treehouse or... Um, yeah, so things like that, an adventure story for kids, because I think it's just, it's so important to, to, for kids to know that books can be gateways to adventures. Um, and it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a screen. It can be like paper is a wonderful thing. So, um, I, I'm not ruling anything out. I, I'm not saying I wouldn't write a book like that. I probably will at some point. Probably when I finish my master's degree, when I have more time. Um, but I don't, I as of today, I have not written any books with a clearly political message, no. All right, and I believe that's all the time we have today. Uh, would you like to close us out? Um, read a book. They're good for you. <laughs> um, it'll do you well. Um, other than that, uh, thanks for having me on, Tim. It's been good to, good to talk with you again. I'm Tim Shrimp, and you've been listening to the All You Can Eat Shrimp podcast. We hope you had your fill.